If you have your Bibles today, open to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to jump right into it. We are following the second missionary journey of Paul the Apostle. And as we jump into it, I want to show you a map. For those of you that love maps as much as I do, uh, check this out. We remember that Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, right? Which is really um, the launching pad for the gospel that we see in the book of Acts. And they decide together that they're going to go back to the churches that they planted and they're going to go back and they're going to encourage the believers there. But we know they're divided over whether they take John Mark with them. And so because of this disagreement, they decide they're going to part ways. And Barnabas takes John Mark and he heads to that little, that little island, you can see it there, called Cyprus. And uh, Paul goes uh, with Silas and he goes to Syria and then Cilicia and up into that region, you can see it there, that region, the green region, is what's known as Galatia. Then he goes to Phrygia, and we're told that he's prevented by the Holy Spirit from speaking the word in Asia. Now, this is not the Asia we think of when we hear the word Asia. This is not like China, Asia. This is what's known as Asia Minor. And they come into the region, you can see it there, of Mysia, and they think, well, if we can't go there, we'll go up north and we'll go to Bithynia, which is, uh, again, they're, they're thinking this is where God would have us to go, but the Holy Spirit does not allow them to. And so, you know, they end up in Troas, and that's where Paul gets this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come to Macedonia and help. And so they travel by boat to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. It's amazing because all the while they're journeying and they're saying, what is the direction that God would have us? God was actually leading them. You see that? How they were actually heading towards Troas, which would bring them into a place called Philippi. And then last week in the beginning of chapter 17, we saw them travel into Thessalonica. And right away, Paul goes into the synagogue and verse two there of chapter 17 tells us, that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, I love this, because you're gonna find this word a lot with Paul, especially in this chapter. It says, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Can I just say, the Christian faith is a reasonable faith, okay? Paul never went into the synagogue and said, hey, guys, let me tell you how I feel about Jesus, or let me give you my opinion about Jesus. Now, I know you know this, in this internet age that we live in, it seems like everybody has an opinion about absolutely everything, right? And everyone's an expert because everyone watches YouTube, right? So they've got it all figured out. But even regarding Jesus, you'll notice when the topic uh, of Jesus comes up, even on Facebook or Instagram, wherever you are, everybody's got an opinion and sometimes their opinion comes out of left field and you're like, where did that come from, right? And so you can share from scripture, maybe you, you share something about heaven or hell and they'll say, well, I don't believe that. Or they say, I, I don't believe that a, a loving God would ever send anyone to hell. And you can question them and say, now, when you say that, what's that based on? And they'll say, well, I just don't think so. So you mean no evidence? No, no, I just believe that. Well, why? Well, I don't believe that a loving God would send anyone to hell. I just don't believe it. And sadly, in our culture, that's enough. It's enough to believe anything about anything. People will say, well, I, I want to believe that, and that's good enough for me. Or I choose to believe that, and that's my truth. Listen, there is no my truth and your truth. There is truth, and everything else is a lie. Remember when Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? What do you say? I am truth, right? But Paul goes into the synagogue, and look at this. He reasons with them from the scripture. Because if these Jews are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, he wants it to be based on the word of God. He wants it to be founded on the authority of God's word and not just his opinion about who he thinks Jesus is. And, and sadly for too many today, even in the church, 
Their faith is not based upon God's word, but it's based upon maybe an experience. Or somebody told me something, and so I have these feelings about who Jesus is. Somebody told me something about Jesus, and so I just believe it, but they've never searched the scripture for themselves. And so you'll hear a lot of people say, well, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible, right? Something like, God helps those who help themselves. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> Scripture actually says the opposite, right? God helped us when we could not help ourselves, right? And, and so, so many people, well, doesn't it say somewhere? And, and listen to me today. If you're not grounded in the word of God, you can come to faith in God, but if your faith is not grounded in the word of God, then that's a problem. If your faith is simply based upon your feelings, that's a problem. Because feelings can change and opinions can change. And if my relationship with Jesus is based on how I feel, oh, I, I just really feel that Jesus is real, well, what happens when life gets flipped on its head and all of a sudden you don't feel that way, right? I'll tell you what happens. You'll change your belief based on your feelings. Listen, if you only believe what your pastor tells you, but you never look at it for yourself, that's a problem. Because later on, someone's gonna come to you and they're gonna knock on your door. They're gonna hand you a little Watchtower magazine, Right? or they're gonna to talk to you about a mother God, right? And you'll say, well, you know what? That sounds believable, right? And now I believe that. And you'll be tossed to and fro because you have no foundation in the scripture. And, and so Paul, he goes into the synagogue and he reasons with them about Jesus. And here's what he does. He takes them back to the prophecies of scripture and he says, look guys, here's how this points to Jesus as the Messiah. Now look at what he talks about here with the Jews. It says he explained that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Now, why would Paul be talking about this with the Jews? Like, don't they know this about their Messiah, right? Well, here's the thing. The Jews had a propensity to look at the prophecies of Scripture and only focus on what they wanted to focus on. Does that sound at all familiar, right? Just give me the verse of the day. Just give me something to encourage me, right? That's all I want to hear. And, and it's human nature, isn't it, right? To just focus on what we want to focus on. And so the Jews of that time struggled with this idea of a suffering Messiah, and they still do to this day. But Isaiah 53 tells us that Messiah, this suffering servant, that he would be despised. Tells us that he would be rejected, that he would be a man of sorrows. Of course, we look at Isaiah 53 and we say, man, that's one of the most powerful prophetic passages of the Messiah. And understand this, it was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. And so the Jewish people had 700 years to look at this and say, oh yeah, the Messiah, he's going to suffer. And yet Paul shows up in the synagogues and he has to argue that fact. He says, look guys, it was promised the Messiah would suffer. But Isaiah 53 tells us not only that he suffers, but it tells us why he suffers. It tells us that he was pierced. Again, this was 700 years. Think about this. Before the birth of Christ, long before the Roman Empire was in existence, crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet, and yet we're told he was pierced. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord lays on him, this suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. And so the message from the prophet Isaiah is not only that Messiah is going to suffer, but he's going to suffer for you and for me. So Paul reasoned with them. He wanted them to know not just what to believe, but why to believe it. You would have to reason with the Jewish scholars in a synagogue if you're going to get them to believe in Jesus. But in our passage, it tells us some of them are persuaded. 
Now, when they're persuaded, the, the Jewish leaders start to get upset, right? Probably because they're, they're losing some of their influence. And so they get the city in an uproar and they cry out. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down, they've come here too. They're saying, we heard about these guys. They stirred things up in other places and now here they are. And this is not meant to be a compliment. Understand it's meant to be a dig, but boy, is this ever a compliment. I would love to hear that said about Grace Point. You know that church in Rockin' County that turned the county upside down? Come on. That, that church that turned the tri-state area upside down? But when you think about these words, technically speaking, the language is wrong. Because when you have a biblical worldview, you will understand that we as Christians are not attempting to turn the world upside down. We're trying to turn the world right side up. See, the world was already turned upside down. Genesis chapter 3 gives us the story of sin entering into the world, and at that point, creation was literally flipped on its head. You know, there's a big question that a lot of people wrestle with in our world today, and it's this question of suffering, right? Because people can't reconcile an upside-down world with a loving God. Have you ever been asked the question, right? You know the question. If God is so good and, and God is so loving, then why do people suffer and why do people die? And here's the simple answer. God never intended for people to suffer, and he did not create us for death. Now, where does death come into the picture? It's not a creation. Remember a creation? God creates everything. He looks at everything, and he says, it is good. But is death good? No. So where did death come from? Listen, we invited death with our sin, with our rebellion against God. I mean, think about it. If God created death, what kind of God would he be? No, God is a good God. And he created us in his image, in his likeness. He is the author of life. We understand without him, there is no life at all. And when he created us, he made us eternal beings. And he didn't create us and create mankind and just say, oh, now I'm going to make him suffer, right? Or, or now I'm going to watch him die. Listen, again, we invited death in with our rebellion. But now we understand that when Jesus comes and he dies on the cross, he even redeems death. Yes, death is not good. The, the word of God tells us that death is an enemy. In fact, it's the last enemy to be destroyed. And, and so when they say these men are turning the world upside down, they're really not. Sin already turned the world upside down. And now you and I have the privilege of bringing the message of the gospel and the hope of Jesus into our world and turning things right side up. That's what the gospel does. That's the testimony of those who have been truly saved. How many of you would say, man, when I came to know Jesus, he put my world right side up, right? How many would say that this morning? He turned things right side up again. Come on, look around. That's a testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my prayer for you today is that you would turn your world right side up again. My prayer for this church is that we would not be inoculated with some mild form of Christianity so as to be rendered immune from the real thing. I pray that God would make us radical, church. I pray that he would make us radical. Listen, if you're gonna live your life for Jesus, go all out, man. Don't go halfway. Go all in, go radical. Just love people, share with people. That's radical. Just, just love them, be compassionate. Just live out this authentic Christian life in your community. That's radical. That's right side up. And so they continue this complaint. Look at this. They're, they're acting against the decrees of Caesar and they're saying there is another king named Jesus. Now this accusation, it happens to be accurate. And it will eventually get the Christians in trouble. The persecution that is so prevalent under Nero and, and others like him are because the believers gave their allegiance to King Jesus rather than Caesar. 
When they were asked to say that Caesar is Lord, the Christian wouldn't say it. The Christian would say, Caesar isn't Lord. No, Jesus is Lord. And it would often cost them their very life. And so the city of Thessalonica is going crazy. That's where we pick it up in verse 10. You want to turn there? Verse 10. That was all introduction. We're getting to our text right now. Verse 10 tells us, as soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And on arriving there, they went to where? The Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were, more, were a more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women and Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Paul and Timothy, but Silas and Timothy, I'm sorry, stayed in Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Verse 16, when Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he, is, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And that Paul left the council. And some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. May God bless the reading of his word today. So picture this, Paul and Silas 
are, are sent to Berea. Again, the normal strategy, they, they go into the synagogue, right? And our, our passage tells us something about the Jews in Berea. Did you catch it? It says they were more noble than the Jews were in Thessalonica. Two things earn them this compliment. If you're taking notes, write this down. Two things. They receive the word with eagerness. And number two, they examine the scriptures to see if these things were so. So Paul begins to speak, and they receive what he's saying with eagerness. We want to hear more. Tell us about it, right? Secondly, they examine the scriptures, and they say, are these things so? So get this. The Bereans hear the teaching of the, the apostle Paul. And I'm sure his teaching was convincing. I'm sure it came with power. I'm sure it came with authority. And, and yet they would not just accept his message without checking it out for themselves. They want to know, man, are these things really so? And I don't think this was just a careful searching of Scripture. Like, oh yeah, it's in there, right? No, it's there. No, they examined the Scripture. They examined the Word. It was worth it to them to put in the hard work and really investigate what God's Word said and see, man, does Paul's teaching line up? And here's what their study showed, that they believed they could find truth in the Word of God. You get this? To them, the Word of God, the, the Scripture is not just an inspiring book. It's not just great poetry. It's not just a place where I could find that encouraging Scripture to get me through the day. No, to them, Scripture was a book of truth, and truth was there to find. The question this morning is, what is God's Word to you? And your study of God's Word says a lot about what you truly believe about God's Word. But I love, uh, what I love about the Bereans is that in the midst of all of their study, right, with this d- desire to know truth, they are by no means skeptics. Again, they receive the word with readiness. They receive the word with eagerness. W- when Paul spoke, they had clear heads. Tell us more, right? But understand this, they also had open hearts. Many people you talk to in the world today, they say they're open-minded, right? I'll listen to what you want to have to say. I'm ready to debate. I'm ready to reason. But the reality is their hearts are not open, right? And so you can, you can go back and forth all day long, but they won't receive the word with eagerness because God has yet to do a work in their heart. And so when we go and we speak and we evangelize, we're praying, Holy Spirit, would you soften the heart, amen? Would you prepare the heart for the word? But scripture says here, many of them therefore believed. And so Paul speaks to these guys, and check this out, the whole time he's speaking to them, they're fact-checking him, right? They're, they're like going through, and they're, they're fact-checking what he's saying. They want to see, is, is that really in God's word? And they're going to come to find out what Paul said was true. That's exactly what happens. Now, unfortunately, this positive experience with the Bereans is, is short-lived, because those envious Jewish leaders from Thessalonica, they actually follow them down there. Like these guys are not satisfied enough to to force Paul out of their own city. They travel 60 miles, likely by foot, right? They gotta go down to Berea and and upset things down there. And they they stir up the crowds in the city and it's almost like, man, here we go again, right? It's the same thing that happened in Pisidian Antioch. It's the same thing that happened in Iconium, in Lystra and Thessalonica. This is the fifth city that Paul was run out of by an angry mob. Listen, when you preach the gospel, when you clearly preach the gospel, you're gonna get one of two reactions. You're either gonna get repentance or you're gonna get a riot, right? And I say, let's preach the gospel and see what happens, right? It's exciting. Let's see where, let's see where it goes, right? But, but things must have gotten crazy in Berea because it says immediately they send Paul off. It's almost like they fear for his life. We gotta get Paul out of here. And so Paul goes, but Silas and Timothy remain. And I love that because it shows Paul's heart. I gotta go, but you gotta stay here. There's believers here, you gotta invest in them. I love it because it shows that his heart was not just to make converts, but he wanted to make disciples, right? He wanted to invest in the people. And so they drop Paul off in in Athens, 
And as the boat's going away, I see Paul saying, hey, tell Silas and Timothy to get here as soon as possible, right? And you almost get this sense that he's going to wait for his buddies before he begins ministry in Athens. He's going to hang out in the city and wait till they get here, right? But he's compelled to speak. Understand, as Paul sails into this great Greek city of Athens, it is a city that's a few hundred years past its prime. I'm sure it's an impressive, historic city, but as Paul walks around, he's a, a tourist of sorts. As he looks at all that he, uh, that's around him, he is not impressed. No, Scripture tells us he's depressed because he sees a city that's full of idols. The Greek word that's used there really means to be under idols or be swamped by idols. It's it said that at this time, it was easier to find an idol in Athens than it was to find a person. <laughs> like the idols outnumbered the people, right? And so Paul doesn't walk through the city and say, man, look at these cool statues, look at these cool temples, right? No, he says, it's a shame that these statues and these temples don't lead people to God. It's, it, the, the failure of this religious system, he's, it's very clear that it cannot satisfy mankind. These systems that he's looking at cannot take away their sin. These systems are false religious systems. And so his heart, we see, is stirred. He's provoked. He sees a city that's given over to idols. I, I wonder, when you go into modern cities today, like New York City, I wonder what your response is inwardly. To me, New York City is still pretty amazing. Even with everything going on, it's still, to me, a pretty amazing city. And you can go in and see all the lights of Times Square. You can go to a Broadway show, right? It's easy to get impressed and go, wow, look at this great city. But if you look a little bit deeper, I'm going to challenge you next time you're there. If you look a little bit deeper, and you don't have to look very far, I think a city that is looked over by millions of visitors is often overlooked by millions of believers. As we walk through a city like that, we should be praying, amen? Our hearts should be stirred. And so picture this. Here's Paul in the great city of Athens, a city that was built by the best architects, the best sculptors, but all of the beauty of the city does not honor God, and so he's not impressed. Hear me today. Don't be too impressed by all the beauty and the charm of a world that does not honor God. Don't spend your life chasing after the things of this world. Remember, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? So it's almost like Paul can't wait for his buddies to arrive, right? He's like, I, I was going to wait, but I can't, right? And it says he reasons. There's that word again. He reasons in the synagogue with the Jews and with devout persons, with God-fearers, right? But understand this. He also does this. He also goes to the marketplace, and day after day, he speaks with those who happen to be here. In Athens, Paul faces a, a, a new challenge because it's a cultured city. It's an educated city. It's, it's a city that's very proud of its history. This place is different than anywhere he's ever preached before. At this point, Athens' greatest days are behind it, but it's still described as the intellectual capital of the Greco-Roman world. And so Paul's walking through the marketplace and he encounters the philosophers of the day. It says he encounters both the Epicureans and the Stoics, two different philosophies that were popular in that time. Epicureans was, it was a school of philosophical thought started by a, a guy named Epicurus. He lived 300 years before Christ, and he basically came up with this philosophy, in short, that believed in randomness. He believed there was this pantheon of gods. There was many different gods and goddesses, but, man, they really had nothing to do with the world of mankind. They had nothing to do with humanity. And so this philosophy believed that life on earth came about by a random collision of particles. Does that sound at all familiar, right? 
There's nothing new under the sun. And, and so they believe that, that when you die, nothing's gonna happen. And because of that, they saw the chief end of man as the absence of pain and the pursuit of pleasure. You only live once, you only go around once, have as many good times as you can, right? Have lots of pleasure because this is all that you get and when you die, you're done. That's Epicureanism in a nutshell. They were those who pursued pleasure as the chief purpose of life. How many of you know an Epicurean, right? How many of you are Epicureans? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) And then there were the Stoic philosophers, and they were a little bit different. The Stoics was a a school of philosophy that was started by Zeno, Z-E-N-O, this Greek philosopher. And and Zeno was kind of like a a new age philosopher as far as uh, pantheistic, and they believed in this pantheistic worldview that everything is God. The trees, you know, they're God, right? Similar to modern day pantheism, right? Everything around you is essentially God. Mother nature, mother earth, sound familiar? Again, there's nothing new under the sun. And so the Stoic philosophy was different than the Epicureans. The Stoics believed that you need to endure all things and you keep a stiff stiff upper lip. It's where we get the term stoic, right? When we say someone looks very stoic, right? We're saying keep it together, right? And so the Epicureans say, you need to enjoy everything. You only go around once. And the Stoics are saying, no, we just need to endure, right? And this is the philosophy that Paul is, is teaching to, right? Speaking to. And so all these philosophers, they look at him and they call him a babbler. It comes from a Greek word for seed picker. This was an Athenian slang that referred to birds flying around and picking up seeds. There was this idea of people who hung around the marketplace picking up little scraps of information here and there, but they have no clearly developed worldview or thought of their own. In our time, it would be like those who spend all their time repeating things they watch on YouTube, right? But they have no understanding of things themselves. Oh, I saw this, I watched this, right? But they have no worldview that ties it all together. Basically, they're calling Paul an undisciplined plagiarist. And and the only thing more demeaning than that was this accusation that he was a proclaimer of foreign gods. But both of these accusations from the philosophers, I want you to understand they're so far from the truth. Paul was in no way a gatherer of many different thoughts. His preaching had one central theme. He always stuck to the message of Jesus and his resurrection. That's what it says there in verse 19, right? He was preaching to them what? Jesus and the resurrection. You know, sometimes as Christians, uh, we make the mistake of trying to out-intellectualize the intellectuals, right? Or, or out-philosophize the, the philosophers, right? We, we can make that mistake so often, but, but here Paul is sticking to his theme. And he knows this, that it is the, the cross that is the power of God to salvation, right? And so he's brought before the Oropagus. This is the, the same court that had tried and condemned Socrates to death centuries before. Now, they no longer have that kind of power. But what was it that brought Paul here? What was it that that gave him a a chance to speak on Mars Hill? It was really the TED Talk of the day, right? He got the microphone. You're ready to speak. Tell us, right? Here's what it was. It was the fact that his teaching was something new. And so they say, come on, can you tell us more? We're kind of intrigued. We've never heard this before. This is what's going to get Paul an audience. Now listen to how the people of Athens are described here in verse 21. It says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now if that doesn't sound like our social media culture, I don't know what does, right? Tell me something new. Tell me something new, right? 
Oh, I like that. Tell me something. Or let me tell you something new, right? That's all that they're about. It, it was the novelty of Paul's message that earns him an invitation to speak at Mars Hill. Now, these ancient Greeks, they, they love this always constant changing news, uh, information and news. They want to hear something new. In the early 19th century, Adam Clark described this situation in his day in London, and it sounds a lot more like our day. Listen to this. I think I have the quote there for the screens. It says, this is a striking feature of the city of London in the present day. The itch for news, which generally argues a worldly, shallow, or unsettled mind, it is wonderfully prevalent. Even ministers of the gospel, negligent of their own sacred function, are, are become in this sense Athenians. And so that the book of God is neither read nor studied with half the avidity and spirit as Instagram, I'm sorry, as the newspaper. <laughs> it's no wonder if such become political preachers and their sermons be no better than husks for swine. To such hungry sheep look up and are not fed. Wow. What a powerful thought. That this, this itch or, or, or this desire for something new, it really reveals a shallow, unsettled mind. Listen, so much of our world, that's the, where they're at, right? Show me something new. Tell me something new. Entertain me. I'm bored. And I have to be honest that this is a temptation even for me from week to week. I want to come and show you something new. Check this out, right? right? You got to see this. But I also know this, my sacred function, my calling is to be in the word and to preach from the word. <laughs> and, and your calling should be like the Bereans to say, not only am I going to receive the word with eagerness, but I'm going to examine the scripture daily to see if what Pastor Dan says is actually true. I hope you do that. Is that really in there? Is that really what it means? Listen, we live in a day and age when we have access to so much information, and that's a blessing and a curse at the same time. Right, because you can get tons of sermons. You can stay home today. You don't have to even come here. You can stay home and watch a, watch a podcast, right? Listen to a podcast. You can listen to some of the most entertaining preachers, and many of them are, are much more charismatic than I am. But I want to caution you, church. Be very leery of preachers who don't open this book. Be very leery of preachers who don't open this book, who don't teach from the Scripture, but just give you their opinion of world events. Paul would always reason from Scripture. He would always say, look, I want you to see what the Word of God says. Now here on Mars Hill, it's a little bit different because he doesn't start with an outright exposition of Scripture, which was his custom. Again, in the synagogue, go to the Old Testament. Instead, Paul begins with this general reference to, uh, to religion. He says, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. Many in that time thought the Athenians were like the most religious people in the whole world. But I don't think Paul says this in a positive way. I really don't. Because truth be told, if you trust in a false religion, then that religion can actually lead you away from God, right? And so it's not always a good thing to, to say that people are very religious. But look at verse 23. He says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Athens was filled with these altars to the unknown gods. Why? Because the Greeks believed in many gods. And they also believed that these gods were really fickle, right? And so they would build all these altars to try to appease these gods. But what happens if they miss a god? And he shows up and he's like, where's my altar, okay? And so they built all these altars to the unknown god. They say, oh, well, that's you over there, right? We got you, right? And it's interesting. I was reading this week that 600 years before Paul arrives in Athens, there was actually a plague that came over the city. 
And the thinking, of course, was, man, the gods must be angry, and so we need to appease the gods. And so a man by the name of Epimetides, he had this brilliant idea. Well, I don't know if it's a brilliant idea, but it was an idea. And he took this large flock of sheep, and he let them loose in Athens. And wherever they would lay down, they would sacrifice the sheep to the god that had the nearest shrine. So if it lays down near Zeus's shrine, well, that one goes to Zeus. Or Poseidon's shrine, that's his. Or Hermes or Artemis or Athena or Aphrodite's. Again, no shortage of gods, right? But if the sheep laid down and it was nowhere near a shrine or a temple, they would sacrifice that sheep and they would set up an altar to the unknown god. And so these altars are everywhere. And Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. That's where he begins. He begins with their culture. And, and he said, verse 24, now, now notice what he does. He begins with God, and he works his way down to man. I want you to watch this, right? He begins with God, and he works his way toward man, because Greek philosophy did the exact opposite. They began with man, and they worked their way up to the gods. That was their worldview. If there was a slogan among the Athenians, it would be, it's all about man, right? It's all about mankind. But Paul has a different slogan. He says, it's all about God. Let me tell you who he is. He begins with God, and he works his way down to man. Verse 24, he says, the Lord... Uh, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He says, God doesn't need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so he begins with God. He says, God is creator. And then he says, God is also sustainer of life. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why do you live in New York today? Because God wants you to live here, right? He's determined the boundaries of your habitation. Verse 27, that they should seek God. He's done all this so that we would seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now he says God is the ruler, God is the creator, God is the sustainer, he's the ruler of all things. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. I love this because it shows how well-read Paul was. He's got this working knowledge. It's in his head, like it's in his heart. He's got this working knowledge of Greek philosophy, Greek poetry. And so he's able to stand up there in Athens at Mars Hill and quote two Greek poets off the top of his head. He wouldn't do this in the synagogue. Again, in the synagogue, we're going to the Old Testament, but here he's quoting them, and he's reaching them on their level. He's quoting their own poets. It's a good strategy for us, church, when we're sharing with unbelievers in the world, right? We ought to know something about what the unbelieving world is thinking and reading and listening to, to some degree. Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Saying, since we're his offspring, we are responsible to have the right ideas about God, and therefore we must reject the wrong ideas about God that he's made of gold or silver or stone. The Athenians, you see, they acknowledge in their inscription in the altar that they're ignorant about God, but Paul ha has been giving evidence of their ignorance, and he now calls them to repentance. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
So Paul goes from knowing who God is, he's our creator, to knowing who we are, we are his offspring. And if you follow this logic, if God is our creator and we are his offspring, then we have a responsibility to him, don't we? We have a responsibility to know him, to understand him, to worship him in truth because there, there is an accountability if we dishonor him and that is judgment. But I want you to notice in all of this that Paul goes into this godless culture of Athens and he never waters down the gospel. He preaches Jesus Christ. He preaches the resurrection. And then he talks about judgment. And I'm reading that and I'm kind of like, I don't know, Paul, I don't know if that's where I would have started, right? He refers to Jesus, yes, but the first mention of Jesus is that he is a righteous judge. And I think he wanted to go on. I don't think that's where he wanted to leave off. I think he stopped short. He, 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 could, he could go on and tell them everything about who Jesus is, right? But he says this, he gets this in. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, the emphasis on the resurrection is so important to Paul and it should be to us as well. Why? Because it shows that Jesus, it shows that his teaching and his work were all approved by the Father. Paul would never preach a sermon without focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ because to him, the Christian life, man, it doesn't even make sense without the resurrection. It doesn't even make sense without the triumph of Jesus in the resurrection. But notice the response to Paul's message as we close, as we prepare to move to a time of communion today. Verse 32 tells us, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, what does it say? Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius and Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. There were three responses that day as he preached. There was rejection, there was reflection, and there was reception. Some rejected. They said, that's crazy talk. I don't want to hear this again. But some thought about it. And it doesn't mean they completely rejected it. They said, maybe later on, we, we, we want to hear some more about this. Maybe later on, they will come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. We're going to hear you more on this. But it also says this, some received. Dionysus, Damaris, and others. There, there are those who argue, when you look at this passage, that Paul wasn't very effective in Athens because he didn't preach the cross. But I think he was going there. I think what really happened was the crowd shut him down. <laughs> they said, I, I was entertaining, Paul, but we'll hear more later. But for me, I marvel at a man who was bold enough to stand up in a godless culture and speak the name of Jesus and tell of his resurrection. He had the boldness to preach the message of the gospel in the cultural epicenter of the world at that time. And like Paul, you and I, are called to share that same gospel in what I still think is the cultural epicenter of the world. He's placed us here. We're here for such a time and we're here in New York because he's determined that we should be here. And, and my prayer is that God would make us bold. Maybe we can't out-intellectualize all the intellectuals. Maybe we can't out-philosophize, I don't know how you say it, right? All the philosophers, that just tells you how intellectual I am. But I do know this, and I do still believe this, that the cross is the power of God to salvation. Would you stand with me today? I love where Paul goes next, because he's going to travel into Corinth. And later on, he writes a letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and 
I don't know if he was discouraged by the response in Athens. Maybe he felt like, man, that was my big shot and I kind of blew it. (laughs) I don't know. But he writes this in that letter. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, he had just come from Athens to Corinth. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you, I came... It did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Hope that's your prayer today. As we preach the gospel, we're not to be discouraged when people laugh at us or when they reject us or maybe maybe they ignore us all outright, right? Of course, we need to to prayerfully plan. We need to prayerfully choose our words as as Paul did in Athens. Of course, we need to seek to how speak to that audience, whether it's one or few or many. But in the end, I want to tell you, if we are faithful, if we are obedient in our witness, if we are prayerfully declaring the good news of the gospel, how people respond is up to the Lord. And so we're called to preach the gospel anyway. As we come to the communion table in just a few moments today, we're going to remember, church, we're going to remember what Christ has done for us. We're going to remember right now that it was necessary, amen, for Messiah to suffer, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was wounded for our iniquity. And hear me, you can be here today and you can reject that message, you can reflect on that message, you can say, I got to study more about that, or you can receive that message today. But the decision you make in regards to who Jesus is, can I just say, is the most important decision you will ever make. Because as Paul says, he commands people everywhere to repent. Maybe you hear that word and you think of some fiery street preacher, right? On the street corner, sandwich sign on, repent, 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 right? But I want you to know, church, that word repent is an invitation. It's an invitation to the table in just a few moments. But it's also an invitation to say, you don't have to live that way any longer. You don't have to keep going down that path that you're on today. It's an invitation to see your life flipped right side up again. But it's so important that you know this, that God has fixed a day. There is a day coming in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that's Jesus himself, whom he has appointed. This is who we remember as we come to the communion table. By what Jesus did on the cross, you can be saved. And I just want to say today, that message may be for a few. It may be for many. Or may just be for one in the room today. That you have yet to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. And I want to tell you the same thing that Paul told that Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As we prepare our hearts for communion, why don't we bow our heads around the room? Just allow in this moment for the Holy Spirit to just do a work in in your own heart, in your own mind. Maybe there's that, that tugging even right now to just finally make that decision to surrender and turn your life over to Christ. You can do that right now simply by confessing your sin, confessing your need of a Savior and believing in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Or maybe you're here today and you've strayed. (laughs) And so repentance for you looks like I'm going to turn around 
I'm going to pursue this Jesus, this Messiah, the one who suffered, the one who died in, in my place. I'm going to receive today the forgiveness that's available at the table. As we prepare for communion, prepare your hearts. Let the Holy Spirit work in your own heart, even right now.